1: Hi everyone, and welcome to New Books in Secularism. I'm Benjamin Rossi, the co-host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Michael Roos about his new book, The Problem of War, Darwinism, Christianity, and the Battle to Understand Human Conflict. Roos is the Lucille T. Workmeister Professor and Director of the History and Philosophy of Science Program at Florida State University. Michael Roos, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thanks very much for having me. uh, It's a a great opportunity and rather, what should I say, rather humbling. But uh, I I think that the book, I don't know if the book is good enough, but the topic is good enough to talk about.
1: It's a wonderful book. Um, Michael, I wonder if you could start the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Okay, yes, obviously. Um, Well, first of all, as you can tell, I wasn't born in North America. I, I was born in England. I was born in England actually in 1940 in the British Midlands, I think a day after France uh, surrendered to the Germans, or a day before. And I was uh, brought up in the Midlands, in England. In fact, we were bombed out of our house when I was three months old, I'm told, by the German Blitz. Uh, And I stayed in England, or I grew up in England, went to boarding school in England, and to university. And then at the age of 22, I got an offer of a scholarship to a university in Canada, McMaster University, and I ended up staying in Canada until 2000. I taught for 35 years at the University of Guelph in southern Ontario. When facing compulsory retirement, I, I'd married one of my students and I'd got, I was going to have three teenagers when I retired people say you shouldn't marry your students. Well, a good a good way of getting people not to marry their students is to tell them they'll still have teenagers when they're in their 70s. Uh, that's just a joke. I love my teenagers. I, I'm not sure I love the 70s. But anyhow, I, so I, I went down to Florida State in 2000, and I, I'm still there at 78, and I certainly hope to teach for a couple more years. Now, Writing this book, for for various reasons, was but it was almost as if my non existent uh, God is a Calvinist and doesn't believe in free will, so he was guiding me to do this right from the start. On, on the one hand, uh, I'm a historian and philosopher of science, and I've specialized in evolutionary biology, uh, particularly in Darwin, and I've written several books on and around Charles Darwin and the Darwinian Revolution. I mean, as much as anything, because I'm a Victorian fan, I'm never happier than when I'm reading Charles Dickens or taking the Eurostar out of St. Pancras station in North London. So as on the one hand, I'm a Darwin scholar and very interested in evolutionary biology. On the other hand, I was, as I say, I was born at the beginning of the war. My father was a conscientious objector. And after the war, he and my mother joined the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers. And I was brought up, As as a Quaker, a junior young friend even, and that lasted until just about the time I went to Canada. So I was a very intense Christian, but not not the normal kind of Christian of one who had hymns and ceremonies and those sorts of things. But Quakers, as you probably know, worship in silence, and also they're pacifists. So clearly, the whole question of war uh, in the years growing up after. What most people considered to be a good war, the war against Hitler, was something which was very much part of my, I was, I, I was about to say, the existence, but Quakers, they think of all of life as sacramental. So it was very much part of my overall existence, particularly after I went away to a Quaker boarding school. So you know, what I'm saying is the whole question of war has always been something which. It doesn't just hover over me, but which is intensely important for me. I lost my faith around about 19, when I was about uh, 20 or so. So that would have been 1960, more or less the time I went to Canada. It wasn't a Paul of a Tarsus experience, all of Tarsus experience in reverse, where suddenly one day I said, oh, you know, I just don't believe in the existence of God. It was rather like stamp collecting and those sorts of things. Suddenly I realized I wasn't that keen on stamp collecting and I really wasn't that keen on the God idea. I, I like to joke that having had one headmaster in this life, I'm damned if I want another in the next. And there's a certain truth to that, but I wouldn't let that rather unpleasant man, as it were, guide my thoughts about eternity. That would be to give him too much influence. So here we are. Then, of course, as you well know, the last uh, this last decade has seen the anniversary of the First World War and what was known back then as the Great War. Now, as I say, I was born at the beginning of the Second World War. But we in England, and I suspect very much those in France, uh, always had the Great War, the First World War, hovering over us in a way that the Second never did. The Second was something that we, that we watched on American television or American films, you know, with John Wayne and, and that sort of thing. Whereas the First World War was very much part of British culture. I mean, I was taught as a five or six-year-old by single women who were not lesbians, but who'd lost their boyfriends, their sweethearts in the First World War and just lived that rather lonely life as a a teacher. I would go down to the park and I would see old men wandering around and we were told that they were shell-shocked. The literature that I was introduced to when I was 12 or 13 was was of a Fox Hunting Man by Siegfried Sassoon. So, uh, of course, the war poetry was very much part of by childhood. So when the This Great War, the the First World War, uh, became commemorated, as I say, this last decade. In a way, it was, as I like to say, it was a a project waiting to happen, a project that my non-existent Calvinist God steered me right to. And I just felt that it was a natural to put together Darwinism uh, and war and see how the And I didn't want to just write on Darwinism and war. I wanted to do a comparison between Darwinism and Christianity because one of the things i've been working on over the last 20 years particularly in the light of the new atheists like richard dawkins is the extent to which new atheism or atheism has kind of taken the role of a kind of secular humanism a kind of rival to religion which of course somebody like edward o wilson you know proudly acknowledges even though dawkins isn't very keen on the idea so the book itself is very much, if you like, part of an ongoing process or ongoing project of looking at science and religion and Darwinism and Christianity and saying, to what extent are they, as it were, competing for the same space and, and not? I mean. Uh, And those sorts of things. Uh, But also, as I got into it, I very much wanted to write something which was of great personal importance to me, because as I say at the beginning of the book, uh, although my father was a conscientious objector, his father, was a professional soldier, and his father was also a professional soldier, and they both of them fought in the, in the, in the Great War. My, my grandfather, whom I never met, uh, actually was gassed on the Somme and coughed his lungs out for the next 20 years. Uh, what did happen was it, his wife died just before the war uh, started. She was a Welsh girl of 19 and died of TB. And my grandfather went off to war and never returned to his family. So my father was brought up by a, a couple quite independently in ignorance of who he was until he had to get a a, um, a work permit when he was eight, 14 or 15 and told his real name. So I've often thought that there's something really eatable about my father's rejection of of the army in the Second World War. And he told me later that, he, you know, he probably would have fought if he looks back now, although he had very bad eyesight. But he did work with Italians and then later with other prisoners of war. So he, he wasn't, as it were, a total congee who wouldn't do a thing. But as I said, so for me, this whole thing was more than, it was both, a, a, it was an important project. It was also part of my culture growing up as I did. But it was also obviously, and I realized this as I was working through it, very much a family thing. I don't think of myself as as a pacifist. I don't think of myself as a Christian. I think I would almost certainly have wanted to fight in the Second World War. And frankly, I wish I'd have had the guts not to fight in the first. How's that for a start? <laughs> That's
1: great. Um, uh, a key, turning to the book, um, a key distinction you draw is between Darwinism as a scientific theory and Darwinism as a kind of religion or quasi-religion. Could you say a little more about that distinction and the role
0: it plays in your argument in this book? Right. Well, again, as my wife says, there's nothing I like talking about myself. And this is a perfect opportunity. (laughs) She's she's out walking, walking the dogs and can't be standing on the other side of the room making grimacing at me and saying, shut up about yourself. Um, no, I began, got very interested in Darwin when I was writing my PhD dissertation, and I wrote on evolutionary biology, and then I wrote quite a bit on Darwin, went to Cambridge in England to study in the Darwin archives. But at the same time, I was also very interested in the religious side of things, not because I was in any sense wanting to get back on site, but because if you work on, on Darwin, you work on religion. I mean, it's, you know, it's part of the deal. And as somebody who'd grown up very religious, you know, I felt pretty comfortable about this. It wasn't something where every time I turned a page and religion came up and I said, oh, my God, I've I need to be sick first before I go back to it. I mean, I, you know, I was very interested in it. And by the end of the 70s, the creationist movement was starting to build up in a big way. And what happened was there was a court case in Arkansas in 1981 where some quite eminent people like Stephen Jay Gould, the paleontologist, and Langdon Gilkey, the leading Protestant theologian of his day, uh, were, were brought up as witnesses to the ACLU to argue that creationism is religion. And Darwinism is science, and Darwinism can be taught in schools, and creationism can't because it violates the First Amendment, separation of church and state. Um, I got I got invited or asked to uh, go alongside these people as an expert witness on on history and philosophy of science. Uh, and I did. And in fact, I, I like to think that my contribution was quite important because the judge relied on it pretty heavily when he drew his judgment saying, yes, creationism is religion and can't be taught in can't be taught in state schools. So I was, as I say, I was always very interested in this issue. And I knew only too well that one of the big ploys of creationists is to say, "Our oh, well, Darwinism is another religion. Just like creationism and believe you me, if you think they haven't been pushing that one a lot since Richard Dawkins came on the scene you know you're very much mistaken I mean you know they've almost I think they give thanks to their real god for for inventing Richard Dawkins because they say, there you are. Read the God delusion. This is not a work of science. This is a a work of an an angry Old Testament prophet. You know, it's, it's like Jeremiah or something like that. And I think there's a certain truth to that. I'm not inclined. But at the same time, I want to argue, and I always have argued, that you can make a distinction between using Darwinism as a basis for a secular humanism, and using Darwinism or having Darwinism as an entirely, uh, an entirely acceptable, if you like, popperian objective science of of the nature of of physics and chemistry and those sorts of things. So, I, I want to draw a very strong distinction between what I call. Darwinian evolutionary theory meaning either Darwin's theory or the modern day version of evolutionary biology the kind of thing that the biologists do in the camp, on our campus here at FSU and Darwin, Darwin's ideas taken as a basis for secular humanism which for convenience I call darwinism so darwinism in my the way I'm using it is Darwin as religion, as opposed to Darwin's theory, which I take to be Darwin as science. And I think I'm perfectly consistent in separating the two.
1: At one point, you refer to classical Darwinism as a kind of post-millennial religion. Um, could you say a little more mm. about that pre-millennial, post-millennial distinction? Well,
0: you know, every time things- I have an idea, I write a book. I joke that I never had an idea. I have published three times. Uh, yeah. I wrote a book in the early uh, early part of this century called the Evolution Creation Dispute, where what I argue is that both Darwinians, at least in their religious mode, and Christians in their religious mode, are very much interested in end in times, and that's known as millennialism. But whereas uh, these are these are not my terms, but whereas evangelicals tend to be what they call premillennialists, They think that Jesus is going to come first and that then there will be Armageddon and a thousand years and then the last judgment will occur. Others uh, tend to be post who think that the thousand years is going to come first and that we must fight to put things better and then, and only then, will there be the second coming. Now, putting these in in. in Terms of what you should do. Pre millennialists then say, no, it's going to happen. Armageddon's going to come, whatever you may do. Thoughts of progress are numerical. You, you're not, I mean, thanks to original sin, things are never going to get better. So what you've got to do is prepare yourself for the end by being holy yourself, by accepting Jesus as your Savior, and by trying to convert others. I mean, this is, you know, this is standard evangelical practice. This is, this is why they're so big in missionaries and that sort of thing. So on the one hand, then, you've got the premillennialists who think that we should get our, make ourselves holy and get on side with God because there can be no progress. And uh, all we can do is try to convert others to, you know, to our position as opposed to post-millennialists, who think that the thousand years is going to come, and it's our job to get things better, to try to deal with this, because Jesus expects us to use our talents and those sorts of things. In other words, they do and often do believe in progress, that they believe things can get better, and it's our God-given duty to to make things get better, because the. The Second coming isn't coming until we've managed to achieve, you know, as William Blake says, Jerusalem on these, you know, green, green lands in England. So, very much, you've got now, as I say, uh, I think Darwinians are secular, I don't think Ed Wilson is in any sense Christian. But what I'm saying is, I think they've adopted what we call it the approach of the post millennialists, and so I want to argue that Darwinians pushing Darwinism as a religion have this idea of progress as their underlying, what shall I say, backbone or theme, that things are getting better, and it's our job to make things get better, and we see this in evolutionary progress from blobs up through fish, uh, through reptiles, through apes, up to humankind, whereas Evangelical Christians, not just evangelicals, but a lot of Christians, tend to be providentialists, where they believe that everything is in God's hands, and we can do nothing to make things better. All we can do is try to make ourselves better. When I, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my greatest gains I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. My greatest gains I count but loss introducing medical care, introducing automobiles, introducing new, you know, new drugs, all of that. My greatest gain, I count, but lost. In the scheme of things, we're no better off than we were back in the Middle Ages. And to kid ourselves otherwise, all we can do is put our faith in God and wait and prepare patiently for the end. Trying also, it doesn't mean to say you just sit on your bum. It does mean, though, that we should not only try to ourselves right with god but we have the obligation to go out and preach the gospel and to try to get others to do the same and that as you know evangelicals are very big on conversion you know missions to africa and to uh, south america and of course in the old days there used to be huge numbers of protestant missionaries in china for instance all part of this same picture
1: Turning to war, um, could you describe the traditional Christian view about war and compare it with the classical Darwinist view?
0: Yes. Well, first of all, there's a traditional Christian view, which is not necessarily identical to the view that many Christians held in the last century, particularly in the first half, which particularly which encompassed the, the Great War, the First World War. The traditional Christian view goes back at least to St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, well, you see, by the time St. Augustine came along in 400 AD, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And of course, the Roman Empire had uh, soldiers and all of these sorts of things. So Christianity had to adapt itself to uh, being a state religion. And clearly, the Sermon on the Mount wasn't going to do the job, or at least not as people wanted the job doing. I mean, there, was, could, there could be no business about blessing other meat and turn the other cheek and that sort of thing if you're running an empire. So what Augustine had to do was set up a system whereby it would be not only acceptable, but religiously obliged to take up arms at times. But at the same time, he didn't want us just to be savages and go out and rape and pillage, uh, you know, rather like Russian soldiers in the last year of the war in in East Prussia. So what Augustine did on the one hand was to argue that there is good biblical evidence that Jesus was not adamantly opposed to to people being warlike. And of course, the story of the centurion played a big role here, because when the centurion sent uh, somebody to to Jesus to look after his his servant, Jesus didn't turn around and say, "Up yours, you're a soldier, I won't have anything to do with you. He said, what did he say? He said, I've never seen such great faith. And he cured the the servant. So, uh, on the one hand, St. Augustine says, clearly this shows that Jesus was not against any kind of uh, violence or war. The point is, though, as a Christian, one cannot just rape and pillage. And so what Augustine did was set up a number of rules uh, that, for instance, you've got to avoid hurting civilians as much as you can. I mean, that's an obvious one. You can't just go to war to grab territory. I mean, the sort of thing that Hitler was doing. it's It's acceptable to go to war on behalf of others if they're if they're threatened by, say, Britain and France going to war on behalf of Poland in 1939. So this is just war theory, which was much developed by people like Aquinas and others after him. But come the 19th century in England, because first of all, don't forget the English weren't Roman Catholics, but secondly, this whole business of just war theory had fallen out of out of out of favor. And basically, uh, in as much as war was talked about, it was talked about how you can justify war as something which is, involves building the empire. You know, that it, it's good for all these savages to be b- brought under British rule, or particularly the Raj in India, and so God approves of war in these cases. So, during the First World War, uh, which, of course, was not a war about, you know, conquering savages, but a war about fighting Germans, the most sophisticated race in Europe at the time. And, and just war theory was out. So basically, people, you know, I'm and, and not just the only one in sense like Historians of, of religion in the first, uh, of the First World War, you know, are unanimous from this. But by and large, neither side had a fully articulated or properly articulated theory of war. And so what they did very much was to argue that at some level, the opposite side are infidels or something like that, and therefore it is acceptable to go to war against these people. Of course, they are in some sense evil or regressed or something. You know, they're a little bit like the fuzzy wuzzies in pickle, pickle however, you know, in German uniform. And so, what you find is an awful lot of the fighting of the, sorry, the the church doctrine or dogmas on both sides are very much kill Germans, not because you know. Well, it's a Christian duty, because these people are savages, and they're going to bring civilization back. There wasn't an awful lot of discussion about, you know, looking after civilians and that sort of thing. But, you know, the Germans were terrible to civilians in the first part of the war, the Great War. But there wasn't that. It wasn't really until the Second War that a number of Catholic theologians started to Second World War, I think the Catholic Church was a great deal more established in its way than in the First World War. The First World War, Catholic Church was still very much the religion of, of immigrants, uh, Irish and Italians and, and others like that. By the Second World War, Catholics were clearly starting to establish themselves as, a, as an important part of the establishment, and we do now find that certain, certain Catholic priests in America are arguing very strongly on just war theory. I mean, one thing particularly which got their eye was obliteration bombing, but they felt very strongly that just bombing cities and killing civilians, because that's going to upset the Germans and lead to the end of the war, was morally wrong. And so you find, for instance, a Catholic uh, philosopher like Elizabeth Anscombe was violently opposed to giving Harry Truman an honorary degree at Oxford after the war, because he dropped the atomic bomb on two cities and clearly killed an awful lot of civilians, and knew perfectly well that he was going to do just this. So, as I say, I think just war theory does start to make more and more of an appearance. And certainly in the second half of the 20th century, I think a lot of philosophers and theologians started to reach back to the history of war theory and look at it. But the simple fact of the matter is the First World War pretty much caught both Germans and Brits uh, flat-footed, and they didn't really have much of a theology to support their case. Uh, 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 one final sort of codicil, let's add, there were, in the First World War, pacifists, not just Quakers, but uh, some uh, Catholics, and certainly some members of the Church of England, who simply said, you know, this, is, this goes against the Sermon on the Mount, end of argument, we, we cannot and should not do this sort of thing, and as I say, there were those both in the First and the Second World War who took you know, something of an absolutist stand. But a lot was very much like my father, who said, no, we're not prepared to take up arms, but we don't want to do nothing, we'll try something like the French ambulance unit. But as we know, uh, a lot of these people were incredibly brave, particularly in the First World War, and they exposed themselves to at least as much danger as the soldiers in the trenches. You and I, you know, uh, I think we've probably both seen that, this new movie, you know, They Shall Not Grow Old. And we see those poor wretches in the trenches waiting to go over. Well, and the pacifists are on there too, with their stretchers, willing to go out there and risk their lives for that. So it wasn't the question, they wanted very much to show. It wasn't the question of paradise. It wasn't even the question of not wanting to stand with their country. It was just that as Christians,
1: And how do these variety of Christian views compare with um, uh, the Darwinist view on war or the many Darwinist views?
0: Well, of course, the Darwinist view is interesting because at a, at a certain level, it's almost you see Christianity has to work to let's, let's put it this way: if Christianity has to work to incorporate war and think about it, because it's found that Jesus Christ uh, was not a warlike man and seemingly spoke explicitly against it. So the the two founders, Paul and Augustine, had to set about finding some way to incorporate war within their system, or let's call it allowable war within their system. What what, what many think, and with some justification, is that Darwinism is in completely the contrary position. That Darwinism, from the start, encompasses war. And the question is, how can Darwinism, as it were, control war? Because the Darwinian theory of evolution through natural selection starts with a struggle for existence, organisms fighting each other in order to get, well, ultimately to get access to females, or males fighting each other to get access to females, or females fighting each other to get access to males, or or whatever. And then you get natural selection, and then evolution happens. So it almost seems as though Darwinism story with war, so why are we not at war all the time? And there's no question that there always has been a kind of thread of thinking in this sort of way. You could, I mean, certainly one finds, if not Herbert Spencer, others in the 19th century, particularly American sociologists, and others pushing these sorts of views. And then particularly in Germany, uh, what was it, Friedrich von Bernhardt. Who was a member of the German uh, general staff before the First World War, was quite explicit that you know, a leads to fight, fighting is a good thing, and the best may the best win, and, and and that sort of thing. And many think that Hitler picked up on on these ideas in Mein Kampf, and that inspired Hitler. I'm not houses of Vienna before the war when he was a layabout. And a lot of people would point out fact, a lot of the German militarizing owes as much to German philosophical thinking like Hegel uh, as it does to anything in Darwin. But there's no question that Darwinism has always wrestled with this issue. But the interesting thing is, from Darwin on, including Darwin himself, Darwin and Thomas Henry Huxley fighting it out over Emma Darwin is, you know, is, is just ludicrous. Uh, but almost uh, as ludicrous as a six-day creation. Uh, but so, as I say, Darwinism has always had within it this, what shall I say, this idea of, uh, of of some kind of pacifistic or at least altruistic attitude towards others. It doesn't mean the same so, that there's going to be no violence, but it does mean that there's going to be. we've got to the much more sophisticated level where we realize that greater success can be had through cooperating than from fighting, and particularly as we've developed machinery and all of these sorts of things. Don't spend all your time fighting each other. Cooperate because we'll do a lot better. So the paradox is you find Christians who at some level are having to accommodate war within their own system. Because they believe in original sin, because they believe that no matter what we're going to do, because they tend to premillennialism, they think that we're always going to be bad, that progress is never going to occur. You're going to get Christians like Reinhard Niebuhr and others uh, who are going to say, well, war's always, Nigel, uh, what's his name, Nigel Bigger at, at, at Oxford now, we are going to say, well, because of human nature, war is always going to occur. And we have to recognize it. Where well, you've got Darwinians who start with the idea that war is natural and probably a good thing when we started because it led to humans, believe that humans have now got to that elevated progressive state where war is not a good thing and where what we should do is work to abolish war. So as I say, so if you look, I mean, I, I just mentioned these two, uh, two recent books. On the one hand, you've got the Anglican professor, uh, at, uh, at Oxford, Dieter Beggar, who is very much writes on war, says war is inevitable, that we're stuck with it, and we can try to tamp it down, but we must recognize that, of course, we're simple, we'll always have war. Whereas you have an artful Darwinian like Stephen Pinker at Harvard, who writes, you know, all about, uh, about the Enlightenment and, and these sorts of things, who argues, yes there was war. If you look at society today, it's a lot less violence than it was, say, in the Middle Ages. And what we should hope for is even less violence as we go forward. All in the name of evolutionary progress. we have got this absolutely fascinating paradox. And I might say, I mean, you know, it's one of those sorts of working on this project, as I said, is something that my Presbyterian God, who doesn't exist, uh, led me to without my having any choice. But once I got into it, I said, oh, my God, has nobody done this before? I mean, people have written a bit on Darwinism war. Obviously, Christians have a huge, uh, you know, a huge bookshelf on the philosophy of war and of Christians in war in the Great War and the Second World War. There's a massive amount of material like that. But as as far as I can make out, absolutely no one has done what I've done trying to compare these two had these two philosophers, but they're done in 2018, 2019. We've still got these philosophers. We've still got Nigel Bigger and uh, and uh, Steven Pinker. Entirely at loggerheads, and they, you know, certainly Nigel Bigger has said some very rude things about Steven Pinker. So, you know, the old animosity is still there, but as I say, it's the incredible paradox is that Christians, who at some level think war has to be about in nature, we're always going to have war, whereas Darwinians, who have to think at some point war was a good thing because it led to us, now think that war is a bad thing, and we can get rid of it.
1: Immanuel Kant occupies an interesting niche in your discussion. Um, Could you talk about his views on war and compare them with the Christian and Darwinist views?
0: Well, of course, everybody, you know, it's like looking at Darwin. Everybody has a different take on, on Kant and what his origins are. But I always think that, you know, perhaps I'm putting myself back in Kant and my Quaker childhood. I always feel that Kant had grown up in a, a pietist family. I think that this had a huge effect on Kant. And whilst the pietists are not pacifists, Uh, They're certainly drawn towards that, and there's no question that Kant, too. I mean, Kant was not against war. He said that war is sometimes legitimate and must be fought. But there's no question that Kant didn't like war, and he was not, you know, rather like somebody like Hegel, who saw war as working out the German spirit or something along those lines. So I've always thought of Kant uh, as being someone for whom a, a... Somebody who's inclined to pacifism, as I think I would say I am, I am very congenial with his thinking about such things as uh, the the whole question of how we should treat others and that sort of thing. There's no question that if you're bombing uh, Hiroshima and killing civilians just to end the war. You're certainly not treating those civilians as ends in themselves. I mean, you might get into a, you know, a convoluted argument that two soldiers across no man's land trying to kill each other are respecting each other as an enemy. And of course, in a funny way, that's true, isn't it? Because when you capture your enemy, you're expected not to kill them. You're expected to treat them as a human being. You're not going to let them fight on or anything like that. But we all think that it's immoral to kill, your, you know, your captured soldiers. To do that is is morally wrong. And I think that that would be very much a Kantian position, that you, you, you know, you're obviously not treating these people as ends in themselves. Because Kant has a lot of, you know, equivocal arguments about punishment. He says, by punishing people, you're showing that you don't just... Punishment means you treat them as a human, rather than just putting them down like a mad dog. You can't I mean, you can't punish a tree that falls on you. You may cut the tree up so it can't do any more damage, or you can't punish a lion that kills you. You might shoot the lion so it can't do any more damage, but that's not punishment. So I think that Kant's... You know, my own feeling is that Kant's philosophy is very much one which pushes him towards a pacifistic view of human nature. And I think that most people would agree with me on that. And I myself would put a lot of this back to his privatist background, which, as I say, is something in many respects I I share. But as I say, at the same time, I don't think Kant is a pacifist. Interestingly, of course, one of the things that Kant does push is that by trading with each other, there's going to be less and less. inclination to hurt each other. Now, you know, people have said, well, that wasn't true at the beginning of the First World War, because there was a lot of trade between England and Germany. But I don't think it's necessarily false. And I think, you know, to to bring up today, a lot of people would say President Trump's attitude towards other nations. You know, he's going to stop NAFTA, he's going to mess it up, and he's stopping the, you know, trans-Pacific thing, he's being rude about the EU. And I think a lot of people would say, well, it might not necessarily lead to war immediately, although God knows what might happen in, in China. I mean, I certainly don't think abolishing NAFTA is going to mean that the, the Canadians to go and march again on the White House. But, you know, I think a lot of people would say, you know, China is a big problem. It's not going to go away. Let's try and make it as much in China's interests to have a healthy America than otherwise and that means things like trade. And I think that would be, I mean, I don't think it's only Kant's argument, but I think that would be very much in the spirit of the kind of thinking that
1: Kant had. Herbert Spencer also seems to be a particularly important figure in the intellectual history that you offer. Yes,
0: I, 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 yes, I almost you know—I almost went on for a moment longer. And said, Interestingly, Herbert Spencer has exactly that kind of thinking. I'll right? tell you, Spencer lived... You know, until he was in his eighties. And he had a lot of views over the years. There's no question, as a young man, he was very much like Margaret Thatcher, nonconformist from the British Midlands, looking working hard, but as it were, seeing the gentry and the and the, the, the established church and everything getting all the goodies. And what he wanted to do was break down a lot of these barriers by you know, by what we call a much more libertarian or liberal, neoliberal view today, the sort of thinking that Margaret Thatcher had. And Spencer was certainly very much inclined that way. And then they took up evolution, and, and interestingly, he became a lot more holistic. He he became quite influenced by German thinking, he, and Spencer never admitted this, but he did, and particularly by people like Schelling, who were very much into organicism and organic views. And Spencer is well known for thinking of society as an organism. And so we find that by the by the nineteen, you know, 19, the, I'm sorry, the 1870s, certainly the 1880s, Spencer is nothing like the Spencer of 1850, and he's much more inclined to think that going to war is simply you know, bad for trade and bad for society. So, Spencer does tend to get labeled as the ultimate social Darwinian. In fact, if we look at Spencer's own thinking, it, he's a lot less than that. I mean, as I say, there are social Darwinians. And Friedrich von Bernhardi, General Friedrich von Hardy, in the 1910s in Germany is completely and utterly a social Darwinian. But Spencer, as I say, is a bit more complex.
1: Um, underlying much of the discussion is a kind of long-running debate about human nature and warfare. Um, in which we seem to be, in your wonderful phrase, a shuttlecock in a game of badminton between Thomas Hobbes and Jean jacques Rousseau. Um, how does this debate work out uh, work itself out in the debate between Darwinists and Christians?
0: Well, of course, this is a big thing, and I think uh, certainly I think what is interesting is after the second world War, nobody had a very good view of human nature Why the Christians all the Darwinians. And let's face up to it. After the Second World War, and going straight into the Korean War with the Cold War hovering over us all. And by God, I'm old enough to remember how, how scary that was. Uh, you know, the idea that human nature might have something to be said positively for it was not a popular idea either by Christians or by Darwinians. And so we've got an awful lot of the naked age and, the you know, the... the the ape without the, you know, with the killer instinct. And we got, you know, all sorts of stuff by people like Conrad Lorenz and Robert Ardrey and others like that. Robert Ardrey particularly. I mean, I I think quite highly of Robert Ardrey. I think he was certainly a great writer. And we know that he was a very liberal thinker. He was black. One of the reasons he did anthropology, he was blacklisted during the MacArthur era in Hollywood. So, you know, Ardrey's not a not a, you know, he's not a neo-fascist, but the view very much was that humans somehow have gone wrong and that human nature is very much the killer ape. and Very much, in fact, if you like, the whole idea of original sin, the Augustinian idea of original sin. And in fact, in my book, uh, I, this is research I've done particularly myself, but I, you know, I could point to a, a number of factors to suggest that, in fact, people like Conrad Lorentz and Robert Ardrey. Probably, even if they'd never read Augustine themselves, got more out of Augustine than they got out of Charles Darwin. I mean, you know, through and other sources, no question about that. But by the 1960s, people like uh, <clears throat> Franz deval a little bit later in Holland, and uh, others were starting to work on... on, on um, on the apes and on the chimpanzees uh, and all of these sorts of things. And at the one hand, we were seeing, for instance, that chimpanzees quite often are violent, and the chimpanzees are Gombe and that sort of thing. There, were, there was violence, but at the same time, they were starting to emphasize that an awful lot of ape behavior, not just ape behavior, but behavior generally was altruistic, was organisms working together. <clears throat> and increasingly, the the physical anthropologists and even the cultural anthropologists were starting to question whether we really are killer apes, the naked ape, you know, the kind of ape that you get at the beginning of 2001, or whether or not we're really much more, you know, much more um, social. I mean, although the gorillas may fight, uh, the, uh, the, um, well, drillers may fight. The chimpanzees may fight. The pygmy chimpanzees, the bonobos, they don't fight. All they do is copulate day in and day out. Rather like undergraduates in Canada in the 1960s. Oh boy, those were wonderful, wonderful days. Uh, so, as I say, I think the view now by many, by many, not just paleoanthropologists, but physical anthropologists and um, uh, others who primatologists and others like that, is that, in fact, the whole story about humans as the killer ape is an awful lot of it's made up. And in fact, a lot of the violence wasn't there until maybe 10,000 years or more when we moved to agriculture. Because once you've got agriculture, you're, you're stuck, you can't move away when you're threatened, and you've got a resource that others want. As soon as if you're two tribes in the in the in the jungle, you know you might want their richer thing, their richer you know part of the jungle. But by and large, you're going to stay apart from each other and respect the others, you know, the danger of others and that sort of thing. Uh, whereas if you've got a, a a community settlement and it's clear that they're you know they're raising grain and growing cattle and and these sorts of things, then it's very tempting to say what the hell, why don't we do this? It's a lot easier to grab theirs than to do it ourselves. So there's a lot of discussion. Pinker thinks this is wrong, so I'm not saying that it's stuck at the moment, but I think one of the exciting things about even for war studies is the extent to which we've got an awful lot more empirical work to do, just as I would want to say that the Christians have got an awful lot more work that they need to do because Augustinian original sin is very much based on the idea that Adam and Eve sinned. And of course, it wasn't until Jesus died on the cross and, as it were, washed away our sins. It's not as substitutionary atonement, that Jesus' death on the cross was, in fact, the if you like, the magic which cured us of original sin, which we all inherited thanks to Adam and Eve. Well, if paleoanthropologists say there was no Adam and Eve, and that the parents of Adam and Eve or whatever were just as bad and just as good as Adam and Eve as their children were, then the whole Augustinian view of original sin starts to come apart in your hands. It doesn't mean to say that we're not sinful, but it does mean to say that we're not sinful in the sense of staying because of Adam and Eve, and we can never, ever possibly get rid of it.
1: In the concluding chapter, you urge us to move beyond at least certain strains of both classical Darwinism and traditional Augustinianism with respect to war. Um, You've already mentioned this a bit, but what do you find problematic about both?
0: Well, as I say, I think it's very much I've tried to pull together the conclusions. In fact, I've been talking to you in the last five or 10 minutes and because those are the earlier chapters. But basically what I want to say is we've still got war. I mean, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, God knows where—it's still going on, uh, and you know, we've still got the threat of war. Things like North Korea, and of course, now that Trump and and, and Russia are starting to build up again, and that sort of thing. So, war is still with us. So, it's still a live problem. It's not rather like what should we say, women's suffrage? I mean, if I went round saying today that we need women's suffrage, people at least. <clears throat> excuse me, in America would look at me as though I'm clear in the head. They might say we need to get more women into, into uh, parliament or into Congress. But the, uh, women's suffrage is, is something which has been fought now. And I would say a lot of us are getting that way with, with gay, lesbian issues, whereas war, I think, is, is still a major problem. But what I'm saying is I think what I find very encouraging, and you might say, well, this is a, an academic position, but, you know, I'm an academic, so, you know, that's I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a politician, but I think I've got my role to play. And I would say what I find is encouraging is I think that we're at the point where we need to do some very serious rethinking about Christian theology. Now, whether or not this is, I'm talking to secularists at the moment, I'm not here preaching secularism. In fact, the whole point is I don't want to do that. I'm I'm a non-believer. So, take that as a given. But I'm not here preaching secularism. I'm much more interested in saying, is there a place where we can meet together on these sorts of things? And what I want to say is I think that the time has come, if it hasn't already come, uh, I've been recognized, where we have to think very seriously about Christian doctrines like substitutory atonement, original sin, and Adam and Eve, and maybe look for other traditions. And there are other traditions, like incarnational theory, where Jesus didn't die for our sins, but died as an example of perfect love. And I see that fits absolutely perfectly with the idea that humans are not innately killer apes, that we are flawed, we're a bit of this, we're a bit of that, but it doesn't mean to say we can't strive meaningfully for, if not perfection, for being a hell of a lot better than we are now. So on the one hand, I think we've got that. On the other hand, as I say, I think we've got some wonderful opportunities to, and I think it's already been taken, to think more and more about human nature, to what extent we are biologically killer apes and that sort of thing, to what extent this has been brought on us by, say, changes in culture like agriculture and that sort of thing. Has agriculture reflected back into our biology at all? I mean, we know, for instance, that, uh, Western people are lactose tolerant because milk became available with farming. But I mean, most people, certainly in the East, are lactose intolerant. I had a graduate student who would throw up if you gave him a glass of milk. So as I say, I think we're, we're at an area where there's an awful lot of really exciting work to be done. By And I always say, well, where do bright graduate students want to go? And I think that's the place where things are are going strongly. And I, I would say to a bright graduate student, I think that topics like war and human nature are really, you know, Really exciting at the moment, so uh, that's what I'm saying. I was, I think that there's that, that West would look that the, the, the sky is bright. Now that might make me, as I say, right at the end of the footnote that I added in, in, in when it was in proof. <laughs> you know, you might say, "Oh my God!" But you're really just a Darwinian, aren't you? You just believe in progress and that sort of thing. Well, yes and no and maybe. Uh, I yeah, of course, at one level. I'm an optimist. I think we could do these sorts of things. On the other hand, as I said, I'm not a pacifist. So I'm certainly, you know, at at some level, I, I, I think that sometimes war is, I hate to use the word good thing, but a necessary evil. I certainly think that at the beginning of the Second World War, I think that if one could perfectly legitimately morally religiously join the army i don't think you had to i think it was possible to be a conscientious objector like my father with with honor and dignity uh, so but so as i say but i do think i'm not a pacifist so i, I is it all going to work out in the end dear god knows i mean or is some crazy bastard in in the mid east or pakistan or somewhere going to get the bomb because somebody sold it to them and they're going to let it off i mean you know Well, we've got the kind of irrationality in the White House. Why wouldn't we have equal irrationality somewhere in Iran or something like that? So, you know, I'm not that optimistic. But as I say, what else are you going to do? But like Voltaire says, let's go and dig in the garden. I mean, you know, I've had a good life. I'm passing it on to others now. I'm 78. But I I, I want to say to my Daughter and my my sons and the grandchildren that are coming along. Don't give up yet. There's you know there's life in there in them their hills. Keep at it.
1: Well, Michael, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, um, could you say a little bit about what you're working on now?
0: Well, I just finished a book, or I'm working on a book on meaning, where you know, does life have any meaning? And obviously, I'm drawing on this and some of the other stuff I've talked about, and uh, particularly, in fact, in a way get me back in six months' time, and I can talk to you much more directly for you secular people. Uh, I say you secular people, I'm one. But you know what I mean. Uh, In the sense that I'm trying to argue, can one have a meaningful life if one is neither a Christian nor a Darwinist religion person? So I want to say, at some level, plague on both your houses. Is it possible to be... I like to think of Humean in the sense of saying, well, I just don't know. Can you have, you know, can you have a meaningful existence? In the final chapter, I call myself a Darwinian existentialist because I want to say, even if God does exist, it doesn't make any difference to us now. You know, I, I think there is a human nature, so I, I differ from Sartre on that. Although personally, I think that Sartre thought there was a human nature and it was French. Uh, but so you know, I, 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 I joke a bit, but I'm quite serious. But I do think that I do think that we are free you know, condemned freedom, if you like, that existence precedes essence, that we do have obligation. I mean, I see it in Christianity. I mean, the, you know, we get the parable of the talents. I take it terribly seriously. The Lord, my non-existent Lord, I think, gave me 10 talents, but he or she or it sure as hell expects me to use them and not dig them in, into the ground. So I think that we can have a meaningful life. In fact, I would want to argue that a life where you're not doing it all with hope of getting into heaven is in some sense a hell of a lot more authentic and worthwhile than a life where all you're doing is trying to, you know, get brownie points to get into heaven. At the same time, I'm not a nihilistic person like Dawkins who says simply there is nothing after. I don't know. I just don't know. What did J.B.S. Haldane The the biologists say, "Uh, I think that life is not only queerer than we think it is, but it's queerer than we could think it is. So basically, that's my motto in life.
1: That sounds like a wonderful project, and I hope you'll be able to come on. Uh, when that's
0: published. Yeah, you know, and the point, Benjamin. The thing I want to say is, is the doing. It's it, it, the, the, the proof is in the pudding, and the pudding is in the doing. I had one hell of a lot of fun writing this book we've been talking about. If that doesn't come through, you know, in my talk, that I'm not only a university professor who loves to talk to you know first year students. <laughs> Uh, uh, but who is, you know, I go into my class, my 55th year of teaching coming up, and I just love it as much as I ever did. So, and writing something like this, and I, I hope you will agree with me, one great strength of the book is that it sure is written in a style that regular human beings and not just analytic philosophers can follow. And I've had a hell of a lot of fun doing that. And, it, you know, what more could one ask, you know, on this earth or any other?
1: I absolutely isn't agree.
0: is that a good end for secular? Isn't that a good pledge for secularism? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's wonderful. That's, that's one of its many virtues. Um, well, uh, thank you, Michael, and uh, goodbye.
0: Goodbye, and thank you, Benjamin.